here or you know, combining all of our services? And then how do we make that smaller? How do we put you into not just environments where you hear truth, but uh, really connected as a church? And so Celebrate Recovery is one of those places to do that, uh, where you get, get, get to connect life on life uh, for your transformation process. Pastorates is another uh, environment for that. So you have two inserts, uh, one about pastorate and pastorate month uh, with different ways to get connected to pastorates uh, by either joining a new pastorate uh, or leading, uh, leading a pastorate or being part of a pastorate leadership team uh, and then Celebrate Recovery is having an open house uh, where you can come, invite a friend with you. But again, the point of these things uh, is that our goal is to be, become mature in Jesus, and we can't do that independent of each other, uh, but rather we do that uh, in dependence on each other. Uh, and so these are environments for uh, us growing closer in relationships. Uh, other thing I want to draw your attention to uh, is uh, that this is uh, what in church history is called Holy Week. Uh, so this is uh, the Passion, uh, the Passion Week for Jesus. So we have a number of things that are happening this week, uh, and typically I'd say, oh, you don't need to be at all of them. I'd recommend trying to be at all of them. Uh, I go to all of them uh, not simply because I'm a pastor. I love it. It is a meaningful way to just engage Jesus throughout such a very significant uh, celebration. So we have uh, our our Maundy Thursday service. Uh, we have our Good Friday service. Then there's a sunrise service uh, Sunday morning. And then we have breakfast together after that. And then we'll have our uh, Sunday celebration. So um, also in there, you see uh, there's some events for kids for next week as well. You see the journey and he is risen. Uh, so just make plans to be intentional this week as you consider as you consider Jesus and consider what, uh, what we celebrate during, uh, during this particular week. One more detail I should not forget is that there's no youth ministry this week so that you can prioritize these other services. So in the bulletin, I think it indicates that there is on Wednesday night. That is not true. I'm not going to say it's a lie because I don't think there was malicious intent behind what the office did, but it's not accurate. All right. Okay, so I know that you've just gotten comfortable, uh, but uh, I want to read to you our passage of scripture for today. So I'm going to ask you to stand up as we read together Mark chapter 11. We're taking a little break from our Colossians series uh, so that we can focus on the Passion Week. Uh, and so this is Palm Sunday. So I'm going to read to you Mark's version uh, of the Palm Sunday story. All four gospels record it. Uh, but we're going to be looking at Mark's version today. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went out from there to teach and preach in their cities. That's the book of Matthew. That was Matthew chapter 11. This is what I get for not marking my place in the Bible. Mark chapter 11. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage, to Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied to a door outside in the street, and they untied it. 
And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they said to them, Jesus has said, uh, and they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and drew their cloaks and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. And on the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig, a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who brought, uh, bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished by his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you curse has withered. And Jesus answered him, Have faith in God, truly. I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that uh, what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. And if you have anything against anyone so that your father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespass. Jesus, I'm asking that um, you, would, you would stir some things up for us Jesus, I think often uh, we, uh, we read the Bible maybe like we watch a Hallmark movie that doesn't really have any real crisis and then just has a pretend ending. But Jesus, we live in a world that is broken. It is messed up. And in our lives, we have very real issues and very real problems, so we need a very real king. And so I pray this morning, Jesus, demonstrate your authority here. Demonstrate the fact that you are king here. So thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat, and I apologize for all those Hallmark movie fans. All right, so uh, let, me, let me read to you a quote um, by C.S. Lewis. And I think what C.S. Lewis is doing here is very similar to what Mark is doing in chapter 11. C.S. Lewis said this, a man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. 
Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him out for a fool. You can uh, spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Whoa. So uh, what C.S. Lewis is trying to do here, and whether you uh, like his argument or, or not, He's attempting to create an, an argument that demonstrates the authority of, of Jesus. That's exactly what Mark is trying to do in chapter 11. And he's laying out for us uh, a, an argument attempting to force uh, for us a conclusion that we would face the reality of what must be true about Jesus given certain facts. And I think not only does Mark record it that way, I think Jesus was very intentional that as he was moving towards the high point of his ministry, he wanted to be antagonistic. He wanted to stir some stuff up. I mean, he walked into the temple and threw stuff around. It was no like, well, let me just be quiet and hope they figure it out. Like Jesus was, Jesus was uh, uh, intentionally instigating, and I think he did that because he wanted them to deal with the reality of the claims that he was making. So we're going to look at these four scenes in Mark chapter 11 that weave together to force us to make a decision about the authority of Jesus. And I think Jesus intended it in the first century. I think Mark wrote it so that his readers would have to wrestle with it. And I think we need to hear it today because we need to deal with what type of authority does Jesus actually have? Is he really king or not? So scene number one. Jesus claims to be the Messiah. This is uh, verse one, verses one to 11 is our first scene, and Jesus is claiming to be Messiah. And I want you to see how he claims this. First of all, we find out in chapter 10, Jesus has set his face toward Jerusalem. He is like on a mission. The disciples are like, what is up with this guy? He is like locked in. And so he had been at Jericho. He's now gonna make his way to Jerusalem and he's moving with purpose. And he, uh, and so what's happening as Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem, the suspense is building around him. He's the great teacher that has been all over the place. And now he's going to the capital city. He's going to the seat of power. He's going to the, to the place where, where, where the struggle is inevitable and a showdown is about to begin. And Jesus is up for the challenge. So there's this procession towards Jerusalem. This crowd that gathers um, isn't just the crowd at Jerusalem. This crowd has now been like his entourage from Jericho, walking with, Je walking with Jesus, seeing his purpose. And he's out in front uh, on his way to Jerusalem. Uh, and they're, they're trying to figure out who is this guy. And then Mark gives us this detail um, that uh, as he came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount 
of Olives. Now, there's no reason for Mark to include this detail. There's only one road from Jericho to Jerusalem, and it's got to go this route. But what Mark is wanting to do is emphasize there's something significant about the Mount of Olives. Zechariah 14, verse 4, Ezekiel eleven twenty-three, 23, and also in Ezekiel 43, the Mount of Olives is the place by which the Messiah launches ministry, right? So Mark is intentionally saying Jesus is out the, at the Mount of Olives. Like, this is, this is messianic sorts of things that Jesus is doing. And you remember the Messiah is the one that would redeem Israel from foreign rule. It would reinstate Israel to its earlier glory, right? So Israel under uh, King David and King Solomon was at its height in terms of its world power. uh, And so the Messiah was going to restore the throne of David. And so then in this story, Jesus sends a couple of unnamed disciples uh, into the city Uh, And so he tells them, and Mark repeats the story two times. This is what Jesus says is going to happen. And then the disciples experience it. And it's exactly how Jesus said it. So why does Mark emphasize that? Why does he repeat it twice? Because he wants us to be absolutely convinced of who's in charge. And Jesus is in charge at every moment. He is the man he is leading. And so it's building the expectancy of the readers that something, something is going on. So Jesus told them, when they ask you what you're doing, just tell them the Lord has need of it. I mean, if you're a Star Wars fan, this is like Jedi mind trick, right? The Lord has need of it. Yes, the Lord has need of it, right? Like, so like Jesus is absolutely leading the way. It doesn't tell us that maybe Jesus knew this guy. Maybe it was his second cousin, and you know he often borrowed donkeys. We don't know any of that history. It may have been true, but Mark doesn't choose to give us those details. Why? Because he wants us to be astounded at the authority of Jesus that he walks in, sends, um, sends two disciples to walk into somebody's house, take his property with the only explanation being the Lord has need of it. Not which Lord? You know, no like collateral for if he doesn't return it, just the Lord has need of it. And notice in verse three, how does Jesus refer to himself? He refers to himself as the Lord, right? So Jesus is gathering this authority to himself. And the only response to somebody whose title is Lord is yes, and that's exactly what happens. So also, it's a young colt, so Jesus is demonstrating his mastery over the animal by sitting on one that had never been ridden, right? Now, you might be thinking, why did Jesus ride in on a donkey? It's a great question. Like, if I were to think riding in in a, you know, claiming my kingship and authority, you know, maybe, you know, an elephant would be cool, or a tiger, I mean, how awesome would that be? You know, you stand on the tiger and ride in. Right? But Jesus chooses a donkey. Well, there's a, there's a reason why he would uh, choose a donkey. Look at Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, but he's humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. 
Right, so Jesus is tapping into their expectation for a Messiah. So this was written, you know, hundreds of years before, and then Jesus is fulfilling this prophecy. And so the people are getting it, right? The people are, they're, they're, they're picking up what Jesus is laying down. And so um, they are, uh, they respond uh, and they start crying out to Jesus. Uh, they start saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, the phrase Hosanna means save us, we pray. So Jesus is showing up in a very mighty way and they're saying, save us. We pray. They're, they're recognizing that there's an authority that is in front of them, that he can deliver. And notice also what they say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. So they have hope that the Messiah is now showing up and he is going to restore what had been lost for them. The kingdom is coming back. The kingdom that was our father's David, our father David's, it's it's being restored uh, in our day, and so the scene builds to a crescendo, and Jesus is being hailed as the Messiah. But yet something very odd happens. If you've ever been to a political rally. Like, what is supposed to happen at this point when everyone is, like, stirred into a frenzy and they're clapping and they're yelling, right? The candidate is supposed to get up and, good people of Jerusalem, you know, here's our plan and this is, you know, this is what we're going to do. Here's the changes that we're going to make. Like, it was time for Jesus to rally the people, but he doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't, Jesus doesn't pause. Jesus doesn't stir up the crowd with a speech nor does Jesus say, guys, I think you might be overemphasizing this kingdom of David stuff. He doesn't, he doesn't uh, address any misunderstanding of the nature of his reign. Like in my imagination, it's this big crescendo and, and the band is playing and it's like, you know, and Jesus is showing up and then Jesus doesn't stop. And he just keeps on walking by. And it's like, you know, like, uh, where, where did he go? And he just kept on going. And I can imagine a, a couple of people like, wouldn't it be great that, you know, the Messiah is showing up and, and he's riding in on a donkey and he's gonna free us from Roman oppression and we're gonna be on top again like in the days of, of David and Solomon. And then Jesus doesn't stop and doesn't stir up the crowd and keeps walking. And then they're like, well, I gotta get back to work. Apparently, this isn't going to work out as I thought it would, right? So they, Jesus is not fulfilling their expectation. He doesn't stop and play to the crowd. Why? Well, it's because the crowd had a certain expectation of what the Messiah was going to do. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. They were looking for Jesus to come and deliver them from political oppression. They were, they, they were, they were planning for Jesus to come and, and accomplish the things that were on their agenda. So they were right to praise him, but what we're gonna find out is they were in the wrong location for their celebration because Jesus didn't stop on the outskirts of Jerusalem. He kept on Going, He continues on to the temple. 
So yes, they needed to hail him as king. Yes, they needed to hail him as the authority outside the city, but they needed to follow him as a king that was entering into the temple because that's where Jesus was moving. And so Jesus continued on to the temple, which was the center of religious, social, and political life. It wasn't on the outskirts. It wasn't just picking up the political reign. Jesus was going to the temple, which was the place uh, set apart for the presence of God, where God's presence was to dwell. The blazing center of the temple was the Holy of Holies, and everything was built so that the people would have access to almighty creator God at the temple. And then the people that had access to the creator God was the Jewish nation, which was designed to be a beacon of hope for all nations. So that's where Jesus was going. So what happens when Jesus, who's getting celebrated as he enters into the city with a triumphal procession, what happens when that Jesus shows up at the temple, the place where God's presence dwells? The answer is nothing. The answer is Silence. Let me show you for yourself so you can see it yourself. And Jesus entered Jerusalem. He went into the temple courts, looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Nothing happens. All the hosannas have faded into the background, it's silent. I imagine as Jesus enters the Temple Mount, it's like there's some crickets you can hear. Maybe a bird in the shadows gets disturbed and flutters away. Nothing happens. The Messiah shows up and nobody's home to worship him. It is a powerful statement that Mark is making here in verse 11 because it is the ultimate in terms of a decrescendo, like, hey, there was supposed to be some things happen here, and it hasn't, which sets up the tension of what is coming next. So our first scene, Jesus is calling them to himself outside the city, right, to be hailed. He's, he's laying down the message of I'm the Messiah to be praised, right? So he's giving them that message so they shouldn't be silent. They should praise him. But Jesus is not interested in their praise only on the periphery of what is most essential. Jesus isn't interested in them praising him um, only on the outskirts. He's moving towards the center of life and worship for them, and he's claiming his kingship there. He's not interested in praise on the periphery that doesn't lead to worship at the center. So Jesus is attempting to show them that their view of him restoring David's kingdom is too small, which I think is often our problem with God, is we come to him and we want him to prop up things on the periphery of life for us. But the problem is, our vision of what life is about is simply too small. And what he wants to do is move past the periphery of our lives, the outskirts of our life, and get to the center so that we can praise him at the center. So location matters. 
right? They're praising him on the outskirts of the city. They're not praising him in the temple. Location matters. Let me show you why location matters. You get it? There were a lot of flags that maybe were flying that day, but none more significant than that one, right? When we find like the culmination of, of wisdom, right, for, for centuries that led up to us being able to plant one of those suckers on the moon, right, that's an incredible human achievement, right? Location, location matters, so Israel was supposed to be a light to all nations. They were supposed to be because at the center of religious, cultural, and political lives was God, right? And so they were supposed to praise him at that point. Jesus wanted to influence at that point, but they refused to receive him there. And so scene one sets us up for the next three scenes, because you see the conflict now, right? Jesus is wanting to be praised at the center, at the temple. The people are willing to praise him on the periphery. All right, scene number two. Jesus has high expectations. So Jesus leaves. He goes back uh, out of Jerusalem, back to Bethany, uh, about two miles away, and there he spends the night. And then on the next day, he's on his way back into the city and he sees a fig tree in leaf. A fig tree in leaf would be like we see buds on a tree. So, you know, you see, I can never tell the difference between a peach and an apple tree this time of year, right? They all look pink to me. I don't know, I can't figure it out. But you go to one of those orchards right now and you see a pink flower, you, you don't expect an apple, you don't expect a peach. It's not, it's not ready yet. So that's like a fig tree in leaf. It's just starting to bloom. There's no fruit on it yet. So Jesus comes to that fig tree and uh, says that he wants, he's hungry, wants some food, uh, and the fig tree doesn't have fruit. And so then Jesus curses the fig tree and says, may no one ever eat from you again. Ouch. So the, the message is pretty clear. Jesus hates fig trees. I think that's the clear, the clear teaching here. Jesus came to a tree wanting food, but didn't it didn't have any, so he cursed it. He speaks to the tree. Now, I've read a lot about this. I've read lots of different commentators on it, and, and they have tried to say, well, you know, because Jesus seems a little unreasonable in this story, right? Like, it's not the time for figs. He wants figs. You don't have it. Curse you. Right? But that's the story. And so commentators have tried to say, well, often there are small little pieces of fruit during the, the season of the leaf. So Jesus was expecting those small. But Mark gives us the answer here in verse 13, right? Um, he says, because it was not the season for figs. He found nothing because it wasn't the season for it. So Jesus is showing up, expecting, you know, expecting fruit, not finding it, and then cursing the tree. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to follow Mark's example, and I'm going to leave that there for right now. We're not going to answer that question of what is Jesus so upset about with this fig tree, uh, because Mark doesn't answer the question yet. And, and so he uses this thing called the, the sandwich technique. Um, and so you have two stories that get interrupted, or actually it's one story, it becomes two, because it gets interrupted by a third story, and that third story helps you understand it. So it would be like a sandwich, 
right? So if I'm having a ham sandwich, the sandwich is defined by what's on the inside. You don't call it a bread sandwich, which has ham in it, right? You call it a ham sandwich. So we're gonna get the meaning from what's, from what's in the middle. So I'm gonna move us on to story number three, and we'll come back to Jesus and the angry fig tree. All right, scene three, Jesus claims his authority over the temple. So Jesus leaves the fig tree and heads back to Jerusalem and uh, walks into what for me is one of the most intriguing passages of scripture, right? Where gentle Jesus walks in and starts like overturning tables, throwing chairs around. It says people are trying to walk through the courtyards and he's knocking stuff out of their hands. Like what is, what is going on with Jesus? He's angry and he's acting out of his anger. And then it says, while he was doing that, he was teaching them. And what was he teaching? Well, he's teaching probably from Isaiah 56. These things I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted by, on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. So what Jesus is angry about, right? And by the way, anger is not wrong. Just there's, a, there's something of righteous anger. Jesus is righteously angry. And what is he angry about? Here's what he's angry about. He's angry about the fact that there is this place set aside for the outcast, the broken, the distant from God to meet him. A place where, 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 where those who are lost can be found, those who have been broken can be healed. They're the outcast, and there's a place where God shows up and they intersect God. That's the temple. And God had carefully set up how the temple was supposed to work so that people would have access to mercy, forgiveness. And it was at that intersection that this group of, 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 uh, of religious leaders, uh, this group of uh, uh, businessmen and women took advantage of the people that were coming to meet with God. They turned that place of intersection into a place of profit for them. That's what got Jesus angry because their presence there was creating an obstacle for the outcasts to meet with God. God has a missional heart. He wants to move towards people, and his design is that the temple would be a focal point where the people of the earth could gather to him. And instead of that, it had become a place of personal gain. Jesus says, you have made it a den of robbers. And this wasn't the first time that that had happened. Jeremiah 7 records a previous time that this had happened. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. So Shiloh was the first place where God's presence was in the land of Israel. 
And when they desecrated that place where they turned it into an opportunity for personal gain, when they did that, God's saying, hey, let me remind you of what happened last time you did this. I destroyed it. Right, so he's giving them a very clear warning of this is what happens when you turn the place of worship into a place of personal gain. So who's being robbed here? Two people. God is being robbed and people are being robbed of access to him. And they made a business out of worship. Now I want you to hear this. Who are these people? that God is indicting, that Jesus is, 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 is angry with. These were the religious people. These were the people that were surrounding God. And I think as Jesus followers, as representatives of the church, we need to hear this and hear the strong warning that Jesus is bringing. So here's what was going on. The Jews during Jesus' day, they were willing to honor him, celebrate him at uh, the city gate or outside the city. But as he moved towards the center, the real place of interest, they wanted nothing to do with him. It's not real hard to make an application point there, is there? When we want Jesus to come in on the periphery of our lives and we want him to bring healing, when we want him to bring uh, comfort, when we want him to uh, address some sort of injustice, we are happy to reach out to him, to praise him. But when Jesus leads into the place that is the center of our lives and he starts messing with the economy of our lives, when he starts messing with the way that we've set up our lives where we feel pretty comfortable, and when Jesus tries to be king in that place and he starts overturning the, the tables that, that represent things that we do to make life work and we have to walk through a season of suffering, when Jesus does that, we're not really interested in praising Hosanna and, and thanking him for his leadership. And what Jesus is wanting to do, what Jesus is focused on, right, is Jesus is wanting to get, he's okay with receiving worship out here where we ask him and, and we can tell stories and lots of stories about Jesus delivering us from bondage and and. and but he does that so that we will follow him into the worship center of our life, and he's gonna uproot the tables of the economy that makes our lives work. And he's gonna do that to say, I'm the king here. I have more for you. Your, your image of what I can do is so small, right? But my house will be a house of prayer for all nations, your life is designed to be so much bigger than what you're imagining over here. So the chief priests, they, they see it, they hear it, they're afraid of Jesus. Why are they afraid of Jesus? Because he's messing with their economy. They're afraid of Jesus because 
Uh, the whole crowd, as you see there in verse 18, that the whole crowd was amazed by his teaching, which uh, if, if they get amazed by Jesus, then they're not as awed by the Pharisees, and so they're losing their position of power because that's what Jesus is stirring up. So scene number four, let me move us on to scene number four. It's that Jesus has the authority to lead the people of God. So with that, Jesus leaves the city, and the next morning, they, they pass by the fig tree, and Peter points out that it was withered, that it had happened, right? That what Jesus said was going to happen uh, actually did happen. Oop, let's get past it. So the, the fig tree that you, that you curse is now, is now withered, and what's happening is um, Jesus has set up this fig tree to, to cultivate the faith of his disciples. You see, Jesus had not cursed the fig tree uh, because he was mad at fig trees. He cursed it to serve as a real-life metaphor for the parable that was unfolding for them. He wanted the disciples to have a living representation of what was going on at the temple. So Jesus wanted them to get the fact that when he shows up, worship should happen. When he shows up, delight should happen. For the fig tree, when it should have responded not to the normal the normacy of life, it should have responded to King Jesus. And when we don't respond, when King Jesus shows up, bad things happen. And so the bad thing that was gonna happen for the temple is within their lifetime, it would be destroyed again, right? Jesus was saying, There's a, the, the economy is being destroyed. And so when you see this about the fig tree and when you see this about Jesus overturning the the tables in the temple, a lot of times you can come away with, like, man, that was not very loving of Jesus. I would say the exact opposite. That was extraordinarily loving of Jesus, that he would step in and he would make a big deal so that he could warn them of this is what is to come. When you reject my authority, there is no good for your future. There is no good thing coming your way apart from what I provide. I am the king. And so he's giving them these very clear, visible warnings. When Jesus walked up to that tree, he cursed it because it didn't bear fruit when he was showing up. The next day, they see it's gone. When Jesus shows up at the temple, this place of power, he overturns the tables. He chucks everybody out. And he's warning them, disciples, let faith rise up in you. Let me lead you. So what Jesus was going to do about it if they don't respond when the authority shows up, he's not going to reform it. It says he's going to destroy it. He opposes it. And I want you to hear that he didn't oppose their praise on the outskirts of Jerusalem. Like when God does good things in our lives, when he blesses us and we thank him for it, that is spot on. That's exactly what we're supposed to do. But the invitation is not to stay at the periphery. The invitation is not to stay there, but to follow Jesus into the center 
of life into the place where he can have authority over all things. So that's what happens if we get it wrong. Well, what happens if we get it right? Well, that's what Jesus goes on to. And he says this, first thing that happens when we get it right is that there is a demonstration of power. So Jesus tells them uh, this story about faith, that if anyone says to this mountain, go and throw yourself into the sea and doesn't doubt in his heart and believe uh, what they say will happen, it will be done for them. So Jesus is at Jerusalem, and if you look south of Jerusalem, Herod had built what is called the Herodian, which is this massive temple. So it looks like a mountain. And the way that he built this mountain south of Jerusalem was he had torn down a already existing mountain to take the building materials to build this Herodian temple. So they're probably looking south, and in their lifetime this happened, where one mountain, in a sense, was eliminated and moved to another location under the might of Herod. And so Jesus is probably using that as an example to say, you're awed by what Herod can do, but imagine faith in God that made mountains what he can do. So when we come under the authority of Jesus, when we, when we allow Jesus to reign in the center of our life, he doesn't just fulfill what we can imagine over here. He does so much more. And he has the capacity to lead us into a future that we can't even imagine how glorious it will be. The second, the second thing is not only a demonstration of, of power, it's also then a demonstration of reconciliation or a demonstration of forgiveness. So as you move with Jesus to the center place of your life, and he's the authority, he also leads you in a path of forgiveness. So he said, when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. The point Jesus is making here is you cannot embrace the forgiveness of God Right? It's not possible for you to embrace the forgiveness of God if you harbor unforgiveness towards someone else. Right? It, 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 it's, it's, not, it's not an option. It does, simply doesn't work. You can't say, God, I trust in grace and forgiveness in you, but I'm going to hold this against them. And the other thing I would want to tell you is the way that this works is um, the reason we can't extend grace and forgiveness to other people is because we need, right, we need to enact justice in order to make ourselves feel okay. And so if we're living so that I'm going to harbor anger towards you, I'm going to be bitter towards you, I'm going to hang on to that because in my mind it's a judge and jury that says curse you and that's what I'm, exactly what I'm doing. But only by the grace of God that comes in am I free then to extend grace and forgiveness to you because I don't need you, right? I'm freed up because I have what I need. My identity is set in God, and then I am free to love others. So when we follow Jesus as the authority of our life, it is going to lead us into these encounters of a demonstration of God's power and a demonstration of God's forgiveness. 
The point is the authority of Jesus leads us into a much greater story. So that's it. That's our hope of, of Palm Sunday. Right? They, they got the message right on the periphery that he was the authority. They simply got the location wrong. They didn't track with him to the temple. Their vision was too small. You remember how I said that? Um, do you how, remember how I said that 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 the temple was designed to be a house for all nations, the place that would represent the very presence of God? Well, what was about to happen in that week was Jesus was going to change how all of that worked. Jesus was about to give them access, give his followers access to the presence of God that had never been experienced before that, right? Like the the temple was the place where you could get closest to the presence of God. But even still, there were curtains, there were courtyards. You could go this far, but no further. Jesus was about to change all of that. Where you would get access to God by virtue of his death and resurrection, where God's dwelling wouldn't be in a building in Jerusalem, but his actual dwelling by virtue of the Holy Spirit would be in his people. Jesus was about to lead them to access to the Father. Remember how I said Like Jesus could come in and address some some nice things on the periphery of your life, but he's wanting to get to the center place of worship. That's not simply because he's power hungry. What he wants to do is at the center place of worship in your life is introduce you to the Father. He wants to reconcile you back to God, not just experience some of the nice blessings of God, like, oh, I got a raise, thanks, God. Right? But he wants you to encounter and know the invisible God. And that's where Jesus is leading you to. Hebrews chapter 10 makes this very clear for us. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. I hope you hear in this teaching that as Jesus is trying to stir things up, that Jesus is trying to awaken faith. Let me have the worship team come up. As Jesus is trying to awaken faith and stir things up, it's an invitation to to live better. Like it's an invitation to real life. It's an invitation to, to closer relationship with the Father. That's why Jesus wants to lead you. And I think a good kind of diagnostic for us as we look over the things of life that challenge us, right? And, and, and we say, is Jesus leading us toward this central place of, of, of our lives? Ask, a, ask the question, the diagnostic question, is this about Jesus or is this about me? 
Is this going to increase my glory or is this going to increase his? Is this about expanding his fame or me gaining my comfort? Those are the things we learn on the journey from the periphery to, to worshiping God at the center of our life. So, the fact of the matter is Jesus is going to the temple. Jesus is going to pursue that center place of your life. Jesus is going to claim his right as your king. He's going to do that. The question is, will we praise him on that journey? Will we thank him on that journey? No one is going to be able to stop the Lord Almighty. It's not going to happen. You cannot stop the advance of Jesus. The question is, will you praise him at his arrival? And so the way I want to close our time uh, is giving you a chance to lift your voice in declaration of praise. And, and, and I'm going to be fair. Maybe you need to start on the periphery. Maybe the best you have to offer is, you know, I remember a time that God brought some sort of deliverance into my life. Start there. That's great. Right? But maybe, just maybe the Holy Spirit is saying, but will you trust me in kind of messing up the, the, the central economy of your life? Will you, will you be willing to praise me as I advance on this part of your world? I would encourage you to let faith rise up and for you to give your yes and your praise to Jesus. Would you stand, please? Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Stop the Lord.